I remember one of my favorite preachers in my province, Father Irenaeus from Grenada, beginning a homily in his inimitable voice, which I'm going to try imitating anyway, with the words, God is watching you. God is watching you. Now those words are true, though the way that you'll hear them will depend on how truly we see by faith the love of God for us, how deeply we trust in his desire for us, and how much we trust in his providence. To some, hopefully not in this church, these words can sound oppressive. They fit in with an image of God as some divine CCTV operator, a big brother watching our every move, looking for us to slip up, just waiting for an opportunity to pounce and to punish. But this is a sad parody of the infinite care that God has for each of us, a care manifested in the greatest act of love imaginable. Although in fact, I think if we're honest, the incarnation, the passion and the crucifixion of Jesus they go beyond what is imaginable. In all the hints contained in the prophecy of the Old Testament, I don't think anyone ever imagined that God's love for us was quite so great that he would send his son to become like us in order that by living amongst us, suffering with us, dying with us, he might save us from death and the powers of sin. So God is watching you. But are you watching him? Because to be fully human is to return the loving gaze of God, to exist in a conscious relationship with him. It's a privilege that we have as Catholics to be able to adore our Lord in the blessed sacrament, to see that beautiful and oh so humble sign of our Lord's love for us and to be able to respond with a loving gaze. A few years ago, some cognitive scientists came up with an experiment called the Invisible Gorilla Test. In the experiment, the test subject is shown a video in which there are three people dressed in white and three people dressed in black, and each group is passing a basketball amongst themselves. And the objective for the test subject is to count how many times the people in white pass the ball to each other. Now, most people are perfectly capable of doing this task, and they come up with the correct answer of 15 passes. However, it turns out about 50% of the people who watched the video failed to notice that halfway through it, a person dressed as a gorilla casually walks into the center of the screen, beats his chest like this, and then casually walks off. They completely missed that fact. And the point of the experiment is to demonstrate that there's a lot going on around us which we fail to notice, especially if our focus is somewhere else. No doubt if the experimenters had told the test subjects to be on the lookout for large primates, the results would have been rather different. Now, from a religious perspective, what might this test have to tell us? Well, it might not come as a shock that I'm going to say, we need to be more on the lookout for the gorilla. If we don't look for the gorilla's presence, then we will not see him. And note, this is a good deal different from the common atheist view, which considers faith as being something for the weak who just see what they want to see. 
Rather, those who fail to see the gorilla are failing to see what is really there. And they fail to see the gorilla because they're too caught up in looking for what is not the gorilla. Now, I must just point out at the, for the avoidance of scandal at this point that I am not, most definitely not comparing God to a gorilla. But I am seeking to draw an analogy between our failure to see the gorilla because we were distracted and our culture's tendency, or at least mine in England, to look at everything but Jesus. But I'm also conscious that it's not the case that we can simply pay more attention and see Jesus in the exact same way as we could have paid more attention and seen the gorilla. But it is the case that all too often we fail to see God's effects in the world. We fail to see what God is doing because we've seen the effects, but essentially concluded that they were randomly occurring. At a fundamental level, our attitude can sometimes be like that old song, Kesara, Kesara. But I've already tried a West Indian accent in a talk I'm not going to sing as well. Um, but all the beauty of God's creation, all the goodness of the world points to God. And there are good philosophical arguments for this. Our desire for meaning in life, our sense that there must be some purpose to our lives, even if that purpose eludes us at times, that very desire for purpose, all this points to the existence of God, the one who gives purpose, who is our purpose, and the source and ultimate satisfaction of our desires. I firmly believe that if you sincerely look for God, you will see him in his effects all around you and know him in the stirrings of your heart. If we put aside our anxieties about the future for a moment, if we lay to one side our grievances about the past, if we just pause to consider the sheer wonder of being, the miracle of my existence, the miracle of the existence of each one of you, the miracle of the existence of all those beautiful people around you, if we just pause to consider that wondrous fact, we might come to experience a moment of gratitude to God. That's a remarkable thought. Look at yourself. Look at the person next to you. Each of you is here right now, the effect of God's creative love. Not an event in the past, but something going on right now. God is holding us, all of us, in this place, in being, in this moment. That's the power of the one who's humbled himself to be contained under the appearance of bread in the Eucharist in that monstrance there. That's something we need to recall more often, to delight in our very existence, to delight in the existence of the other, to delight and then to give thanks to God. This practice of the presence of God, this awareness of the indwelling of God within me is the beginning of our recreation. It's the beginning of our starting to walk with God once again, as Adam and Eve did with God in Eden. And the reality is, if the awareness of the presence of God does not fill my mind, then other things will. However much you think they are, nobody is completely vacant. There's always something filling their minds. And there is no such thing 
as not worshipping. The only choice is what to worship. And worship anything other than God. Worship sex, power, money, and they will literally eat you alive. But if I walk with God each day, if I become more conscious of his loving, sustaining presence, I become more conscious of what he wills for me and of the pattern for happiness that he has placed in me. And the love of God for me is a truth I cannot afford to ignore. Just like the man who unthinkingly steps off the edge of the cliff suddenly becomes very, very aware about the gravity he had been previously ignoring. To ignore the loving presence of God is to live in a less is to live in less than the fullness of reality. But as I become more aware of God, the more explicit the reality of my choices become. Because there are way more choices that I have each day that have the possibility of loving God and of loving my neighbor than I am normally aware of. God is with us. That's what the name of Jesus as Emmanuel means. Let's be more conscious of it. It's a beautiful truth. And to be aware of this truth is to begin to feel more loved. But as we seek to rest in the present moment, more than likely we also experience a certain restlessness. That simultaneous recognition of the good of being and the wonder of whether there isn't something more. And that ache that most of us feel, the restlessness, the desire for more, that's something that only the love of God can fill. God does have a plan for us. He did not create us just to leave us. And he did not place desires in our hearts that cannot ever be fulfilled. He will satisfy our deepest longings, but we have to let him we have to give him time and space. We have to begin to make room for God in our lives. More room than in all honesty we probably currently do. But our lives are so full, most of us reply. Where will I find the room, the time? But then we might ask, is what currently fills my time truly fulfilling? For most of us, some false idols need slaying. Because is the answer to my deepest desires simply more of the same? Probably not. And so we need to be prepared to make some sacrifice, to offer some greater part of ourselves, some greater part of our talents, some greater part of our time, so that Christ can come flooding into that space, so that our present begins to look more like the future we desire and that he desires for us. So that when he comes again in glory, he will recognize us because he will see himself in us. Lofty words, at least they're intended to sound lofty, but practically what might these words look like? The experiment I mentioned about at the beginning, it's all about attention. Your attention is so, so very precious. Simone Weil, the great French mystic, wrote, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. The other animals cannot decide what to give their attention to. Instinct dictates. Your dog can't decide not to look at your food on the table. He simply just looks and slobbers. But we can choose what to give our attention to. 
There's a brilliant coming-of-age movie, Lady Bird, and in it, the teenage star, Christine, who rejects her given name and goes by the name of Lady Bird. She's written a college application essay, and she's discussing it with one of the nuns who teaches at her school. And in contrast to what Lady Bird has maintained throughout the film, Sister Sarah Jones tells her, you clearly love Sacramento. Surprised, Lady Bird responds, I do? Well, Sister Sarah Joan elaborates, you write about Sacramento so affectionately and with such care. I was just describing it, Lady Bird says, brushing it off. Well, it comes across as love, Sister Sarah Joan insists. Sure, Lady Bird says, I guess I pay attention. To which Sister Sarah Joan replies, don't you think that maybe they are the same thing? love and attention. The question for all of us then is, what will you be attentive to? Look at what you give your attention to freely and you'll find out what you love. Don't love your phone more than people. You can't look at your phone more than people and still claim to love the people more. Now, attention between lovers has a transformative quality. Awareness of the loving presence of another has a transformative quality. I watched a brilliant documentary a couple of years ago called Into the Storm. It's about a young surfer from a barrio in Lima, not a place where talented young surfers normally come from. His name is Johnny Guerrero, which sounds like something straight out of Point Break to me, one of my favorite childhood films. Now, Johnny has grown up in pretty abject poverty, but he's found a way of getting to surf despite having no teachers, no funding. And he lives with his mum and his siblings, and his dad is in jail, an alcoholic who committed numerous armed robberies. And despite no other kids surfing in the barrio or even being interested in it, Johnny is single-minded about it, not least because he sees surfing and the prize money available on the professional circuit as a way to provide for a better life for his family. He seems singularly unconcerned, in fact, about his own situation. He's always talking about others. Now, his talent gets spotted, and he wins a scholarship to a surf school run by a former champion surfer from a very privileged background, and she's a wonderful lady desperate to give a chance to someone who wouldn't otherwise have one. You can see there's already a fair bit of goodness going on in this story already. Anyway, he goes off to this surf school and he's brilliant and he's making fantastic progress, really, really impressing. And everyone becomes convinced that he's going to go far. But then he just sort of plateaus. He hits this glass ceiling and he doesn't seem to be able to quite get to the top. The talent is there, but there's a block. He freezes in the big moments, or he seems to self-sabotage, not doing what he's capable of, doesn't really go for it. And then his dad gets out of jail. And if you're prone to being a bit cynical, which I certainly can be, you'll have ridden off this guy from what you've heard about him and from the desperate situation he's left his poor kid in. And then you meet the dad, and despite the crimes and the drinking that landed him in jail, 
you realize he's not quite the alcoholic wastrel you thought he was. You realize he's had his own issues, his own challenges in life. And if you have any self-awareness, you wonder what you would have done had you been dealt the same hand. But the thing which is without doubt from the moment the father first opens his mouth is his love for his son. You hear how much he really, really, really loves this boy. And you feel a bit of an idiot for having judged the situation he's left his son in quite so quickly. And there's a lesson in there, but that's for another talk. As soon as the dad is out of jail, he starts to come and watch him at the competitions. And suddenly the son begins to go to the next level. And the son is not doing it for himself, or at least the way he's going to be happy is by pleasing his father. His joy is his father's joy, and he wants to glorify the father, not himself. And his main concern is with what he might do for those who he loves, all the family lost back in the barrio. He just keeps on talking about others, even his cousin, who's taken him into situations which could have cost him not just his scholarship, but his very life. He won't give up on this cousin, and he wants to do something for him. But there's something I want to focus on, and that something is about the freedom with which he surfs when his father is watching. He's free and completely in control. There's this creativity that wasn't there before, a creativity built on hours of practicing what was needed to be good, but he's now gone beyond that. With his dad watching, there is this freedom built on the back of this great technique. He begins to choose well to truly express himself on the waves. And what fascinates me is how he surfs so much better simply because his dad is watching. It's not like the dad can shout to him what to do from the shore, tell him what moves he should pull on the wave, or even which wave he should choose to surf. The father cannot do this for him or tell him what to do. And yet the son surfing is affected simply by the unconditional loving presence of his father. The presence of a loving gaze is what brings about the change. There is the sun in the midst of these waves, truly massive waves, the sort of us most of us would think we would simply drown in surfing board or no. And he can't even see his dad when he's surfing. It doesn't make sense that he should be so much better. And yet, the presence of the father on the shore changes the way he surfs. The only thing that helps to make sense of it is that there is this bond of love between them. This bond which is like the Holy Spirit. This bond of love between the Father and the Son. The complete love of the Son for the Father and the Father for the Son. And it becomes clear that life lived connected by this bond, united by this bond, is different, is transformed. The Son is anchored in the love of his Father. He can ride beautifully in these waves, seeing better, feeling better, choosing better. The love of the Father frees him. Perhaps he knows that the Father would come into the waves for him if he was drowning. Perhaps he knows that the Father will love him even if he falls. The waves are massive and tumultuous, a bit like life can feel sometimes. 
Perhaps our lives sometimes feel like a series of waves crashing down upon us one after another. And yet we need to realize that we exist in the loving gaze of the Father, that he is our anchor, that he is there in the storm, that tethered to his gaze by the bond of love of the Holy Spirit, we are like his son. We have become his sons by baptism and he will not ultimately let us perish. And in that knowledge of the certainty of his love, we can begin to be free, begin to be really secure and begin to truly love ourselves. The father watching changes our behavior. It makes us more secure, more free, and in contrast, less likely to sin. But our lives most truly change, not from a threatening presence, but from awareness of being loved and the desire to please the one who loves me. Father Irenaeus was correct. God is watching you, and that is good news. The relation of Johnny on the waves and the father on the shore is, I think, an analogy that works on a few levels. God, who is both distant, ultimately transcendent, and yet intimately present to us at the same time. Yet it's possible for all of us to live with a notional knowledge of God on the shore, and yet to act when we're in the waves as if he didn't exist at all. It's a gap that St. James cautions us about when he writes, do away with all the impurities and bad habits that are still left in you. Accept and submit to the word which has been planted in you and can save your souls. But you must do what the word tells you and not just listen to it and deceive yourselves. To listen to the word and not obey is like looking at your own features in a mirror and then after a quick look, going off and immediately forgetting what you look like. But the man who looks steadily at the perfect law of freedom and makes that his habit, not listening and then forgetting, but actively putting it into practice, will be happy in all that he does. Pope Benedict cautions against the same thing as St. James when he warns about a creeping practical atheism, where we don't deny the truths of the gospel, but they're only superficially true to us, notionally true. They don't permeate us and change the way we live. They're like the sort of truths we learn, and I'm going to say this at the risk of offending big maths fans, they're like the sort of truths we learn in a maths class. We walk out and we can forget about them until the next class. They don't really impact me as I'm walking down the street, unless you really, really, really love your maths. But a little bit like the truth of the law of gravity, if you walk off the edge of the cliff, it's going to be pretty consequential for you. So too with the laws of the gospel. Even if you're not thinking about them, the truths of the gospel, the truths of who we are as Christians, the truth of how we're called to live in a new relation with God is true even when we're not thinking about it. And ignoring it has eternal ramifications. But as I said before, this is not supposed to be a threatening truth. God is not a God of do this or else but the God who is love, dynamic love, a love that burns, that purifies, that transforms.
But despite the intense, life-sustaining, transforming nature of this love, because it is all around us, because it is within each of us, it becomes easy to ignore. But the reality is, as I said, that God is holding each of us in being in this chapel right now as I speak. As we look upon the presence of God, we look upon the presence of one who sustains us in his love. When I go into the hospital to give the last rites, something I've done more in the last two years than I ever imagined, I always tell the person, the God who has created you in love, the God who has sustained you in love all your life, prepares to welcome you into the fullness of his love. However, we speak of the loving providence of God and bad things happen. How do we reconcile this with the love of God? And here I think we find that the answer cannot be explained so much as it has to be lived. And here I want to turn in this final section of my talk to the story of the blind man Bartimaeus. And his story always reminds me of a sign I saw outside an optician's. It said, if you can't see what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. Bartimaeus couldn't see who he was looking for, but what he heard about Jesus made him realize that now was the time to cry out, and he cries out for mercy. And that fact of Bartimaeus not seeing Jesus for himself, but only hearing about him from others, is something that I only came to see recently. And the irony of not seeing things before in a passage about a blind man is not lost on me. But it makes the point to us that if we do not speak of Jesus, how will others come to know him? Let's listen to the passage now. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want for me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And the first point I want to make out is what Bartimaeus cries out first of all is for mercy. The, quest, the request for his sight to be restored only comes later when Jesus asks him specifically what he wants. And yes, his sight is then restored. But note what Jesus says. He says, your faith has saved you. Not your faith has made you see. His faith has brought him something more precious, more beautiful than the gift of sight. It's brought him the mercy of God and salvation. And in that way, our cry in all the troubles, in all the sufferings of our life ought to be just the same as Bartimaeus. Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy first of all things 
and leave the details of the solutions to Jesus. And in this way, the desperate situation of a blind beggar that Bartimaeus found himself in may have in fact been a gift to him. Sometimes only when we're rock bottom, radically dependent, radically helpless, do we realize our true need, our radical dependency. When things are materially good, we can sometimes coast along, not recognizing our great need before God, not recognizing how we need the love of others. And it can be that it's not until some event completely out of our control or some disaster of our own making befalls us that we're suddenly truly humbled for the first time. But because Bartimaeus knew the depth of his need, he cried out even when the crowds tried to silence him. He didn't let his embarrassment, didn't let any shame he might have felt about his situation and being noticed get in the way of crying out for Jesus. But many of us do. One friend once said to me, if people knew who they really were and who Jesus really is, people would be lining up on the streets to get into confession, but they're not. And it might be because we think we don't really need it. We think, I'm not that bad after all, and maybe you're not, although maybe you want to ask your spouse and they'll let you know differently. But maybe you aren't that good either. Maybe you're not the fullness of who God has made you to be. I'm certainly not. But the other reason, and maybe the more common one, is because we're embarrassed. And as I said yesterday at the masses, take advantage of the fact that there are priests from out of town who aren't going to remember who you are. But on the serious point about embarrassment and fear, the self we project, the self we let be seen, and the reality are often a very, often a long way apart. And we find that we're not quite ready for anyone to see us as we truly are. Maybe we're not even ready to look at it ourselves. And I get that, I really do. But embarrassment, discomfort, is not a good enough reason to keep us away from God's mercy. Preserving our image tends not to preserve our soul. And so I think the, be the, the bigger message of the story of Bartimaeus is not the miracle of the restoration of Bartimaeus' sight. It's that Bartimaeus allows himself to be seen as he really is. And that's the point his life changes. It's no coincidence that before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and that it is only with sin that they feel the need to clothe themselves, to cover themselves up for the first time. Now, before you get worried, this isn't an attempt from a weird priest to convince people to go nude. Despite the current warm weather in Colorado, I hear it can still get very cold this time of year. And so clothes remain something very practical and sensible. But part of the reason we wear clothes is because we're scared of being truly seen, scared of being viewed solely as an object for gratification or scared of being truly seen with my faults and my weaknesses and yes, my flabby bits and then not loved. And so we wear more than physical clothes. We mask our true selves, presenting a better picture. Photoshopping existed long before Instagram. 
We seek to portray a more lovable me. But the tragedy is that this just makes us even more insecure, even more worried about being seen as I am. If our identity is based on our looks, then we will be insecure about them fading. If it's based on our success at work or on the sports pitch or on being popular, my identity will be fragile, always subject to change and decay. But Jesus saw us as we are from the cross and he said, forgive them father for they know not what they do. The cross saves, but the way of the cross is challenging. The cross confronts me with the reality of who I am. And sometimes it can be easier to close my eyes and remain blind. But closing my eyes doesn't change the reality of my situation. It just changes the possibility of my fixing it. To look upon the cross, to be honest about who I am, to recognize that I am loved by Jesus, that's seeing clearly. That's the beginning of our salvation. The Father watching, watching in his divine providence, changes our behavior. It makes us more secure, more free, liberating us from the tendency to sin. And the mercy of the Father's loving gaze awaits us in the confessional, just as it awaited the prodigal on the road back to the Father's home. He awaits us. He's calling us. We just need to begin to walk toward him. That cry for mercy, that thirst for mercy we experience, that is already the Spirit working in you. As St. Paul tells us, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Our cries, our cries do not go unheard. Our suffering is not in vain. Joined to that of Christ, it can become part of his glorious work of redemption. The French mystic Simone Weil, who I mentioned earlier, got to this remarkable truth that is at the heart of our faith when she said, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact not that it proposes a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. Part of our extraordinary dignity as Christians is that God has made, not made us pawns, not made us puppets in his loving plan, but rather has made us free participants. He calls us to assist in bringing about his providential plan. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. A French Dominican, Yves Congar, once said, each one has his place. It matters not a whit whether it is glorious or modest. It is the plan which is grand. One is only great in occupying one's own place within it. The most modest place is quite incomparably great, provided that it is only inhabited with faithfulness. Our lives will be transformed if we can believe this, if we can share the faith of St. Paul who tells us, we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Father Irenaeus was correct. God is watching you. He is watching you with great love 
And that is great news. That you are here today is no accident. It's already a beautiful sign of your yes to God. A yes to your place in the plan. A yes to the work that God has called you to. A yes that you need the power of healing in the confessional and the strength and the love of Christ's very self in the Eucharist in order to fulfill. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.